My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives in all the genre of scripture and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week. And ways you can support our ministry is first, follow our Instagram page. Then you can like our Facebook page. You can listen to this broadcast multiple times through the week if you desire and make comments underneath the social media channel that you are watching and listening to. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org under the Give tab. And you are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 Pacific Standard Time for this broadcast. And this will be replayed as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Sunday. So every Thursday night, we're coming together for this to go a little bit deeper and to try to gain a better understanding of the material that we are covering. So tonight we're going to do something a little bit different because I think we have some pertinent issues in our culture that need to be addressed. And so tonight we are talking about the issue of abortion and reproductive rights. It does go along with our uh, regular series, Atlas of the Heart, I believe very well, because tonight's topic of Atlas of the Heart is places we go when our heart is open. And when our heart is open in vulnerability, then trust and betrayal, defensiveness and heartbreak and love can all be a part of that uh, emotional makeup when our heart is open. So I believe that as a culture, our heart has been open and we've trusted certain people in power to make the best decisions possible and do the very best they can with what they've been given. And it seems like that Christians on both sides of pro-life and pro-choice have definitely um, had lots of emotion, either in celebration or in a heartache. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. How can two people that believe in the same Jesus have two totally different outtakes on such an important issue as reproductive rights and abortion, pro-life or pro-choice? How can we come to two different conclusions? So we are here today, tonight. Joined with me, Sherea Bodner and Jacob Fluke, two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Jake and Sherea. Good evening, Kevin. I thought that was a good introduction. I hope, that, great, uh, yeah. I hope <laughs> that people got a scope about what we're talking about. We are in a... Did we decide oh, that we're showing it on Sunday morning? Is that what we're doing? Yes, why not? Okay, why not? So, I think it's we, worth mentioning that flooding is also one of those Atlas of flooding. the Heart. Uh, feelings. And I yes. think many of us have felt that in the last week. Yes. So I think it's an important issue. I've been in a constant discussion with my friends and my family and just the people around me, pastors, non-pastors, leaders of churches, um, just people in the community. Uh, people are talking about it. And I think that it's very wise for the church to actually form and not just give an opinion, but, but to form an environment and pathway forward mm -hmm. for opinions to be fostered and healthy approaches to some of the most controversial and vulnerable places in our society. So I can't imagine a, a deeper, more vulnerable place than the reproductive rights of a woman and her body and what is going on in her body and what choices she's allowed to or not allowed to make with her body. So I'm a male. 
I'm coming from that perspective. I'm so glad that Sheree is with us It'd tonight. Be a very poor conversation. If she it wasn't. would be a it would be a yeah. really typical typical church conversation, wouldn't it? it would so be. I'm really <laughs> I'm really glad that Sheree is here because honestly, I do have my opinions of it. But I don't, I'm not coming from a female perspective and we need that female perspective now. I think it would have been a lot easier and, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Shreya, wouldn't it have been easier to hear, I mean, it's, it would be just as hard to hear a ruling from our Supreme Court, but I think it would be easier to hear a ruling from the Supreme Court if like female doctors were involved in the discussion. I appreciate that you said doctors. Yeah. Female doctors. Yeah. I think yeah. it would have just at least carried a little more brevity. Brevity. Not brevity, but uh oomph. You know? Gravity. Can I say oomph? Gravity, yeah. It would have been a little more weighty, I think, in yeah. maybe thinking a little more deeply, I guess, than some, you know, old people on a bench. So we as a church uh, have never really had to be, I'm going to be honest, we've never really had yeah. to be or take a stand of pro-choice or pro-life really because the law was the law and people made their decisions within the law. And honestly, um, there were a number of women that uh, had in the past and in current in my previous ministries and this ministry have gotten abortions. Um, they made those choices uh, during their reproductive years and and some were very comfortable with it and some were very not comfortable with it so there was a lot of an array of emotion um i think with it so i'm going to just open up by talking about the issue because i think that the issue i can speak to oh the constitution and and such and how that came about um and speaking a little bit authoritatively, my wife worked with pregnancy care centers in Southern Oregon, and she was the abstinence educator for the schools. So she worked in the pro-life movement through uh, abstinence education and education, 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 we know is super important when it comes to discussion of reproductive rights and really anything. So, <clears throat> so I, I was given the chance to meet Jane Rowe. Um, her name, Norma McCovey, that uh, she was famously uh, just kind of brought to the light, um, the media attention. She was a pregnant woman at the time, and she filed a lawsuit uh, with that ran up the poll to the Supreme Court. And that happened in 1973. Uh, she had her own journey. She went through her own journey. She actually gave birth to that child because she wasn't given the right to have an abortion uh, with that child. And then I believe, if I'm not mistaken, she gave that child over to uh, adoption. So that's, uh, that is just a summary of her story. She did pass away, I believe, in several years ago, 2017, 18, somewhere around there. I'd have to look it up. Uh, but she did pass away uh, here in the last decade and, and her... Her story is out there. You can read about her story. You can read about her life post Roe v. Wade. So the issue is not the fact that 
the Supreme Court did not make a decision on whether or not abortion is okay, not okay. They were not making a moral judgment, really. Uh, well, I'll take that back. They're, they were making a moral judgment, but in the judicial system and the and the ruling that came down, they changed something that is that has a broader ramification and potential consequences that we have kind of put things underneath. We've put things and sheltered them under this idea uh, where the Constitution provides a fundamental right to privacy that protects people and their choices and their choices to specifically like this of whether or not to have an abortion. Um, and then the idea that, uh, that they came up with there is that abortion really is not in, in absolute, that it needs to be balanced with governmental interests. And there was a lot of layers to that, that ruling. Uh, one thing though, that I just, I really want to make sure that people understand about what just happened is People believe that they, the Supreme Court, they ruled to legalize abortion or illegalize abortion, either one. They actually didn't rule that. They threw it to the states. And so they gave more power to states' rights um, than federal. So it's no longer protected under the federal umbrella. So the state is able now to regulate what they will do with abortion. So some have, and in the news you'll hear trigger ban, right? So some states have uh, pre kind of slated and voted in the law of trigger ban at the state level. Uh, and then others have actually had trigger expansion. And that hasn't really been kind of explained a lot in the news that I hear on some of the social media channels and, and also some of the media channels that are just out there that some people would consider as maybe have a liberal side or a, or a progressive side to things. They talk about the trigger ban a lot. They're not talking about trigger expansion. So some states are working on expanding uh, reproductive right access, abortion access and such. So there was about in 1973, what happened with Roe v. Wade is in 1973, there was about a million illegal abortions performed. And then after there was a million legal abortions performed. The difference between 1972 and 1973 or post pre Roe v. Wade and post Roe v. Wade had a lot to do with the mortality of the female, of the mother. And so the mortality of the mother, there was a lot, uh, a lot of people actually survived and it wasn't, um, I guess the mortality of females then I guess statistically probably went down after that. And some, some people don't know this, but since Roe v. Wade, there has been a lot of education and there has been a lot of access to all kinds of reproductive care. So it's not just access to abortion. There's been access to reproductive care. And so as the church or somebody that advocates in the church of where do we go next, I think that 
we need do need to deeply consider what we're advocating for in the future for <laughs> reproductive care. Just because Roe v. Wade was turned upside down and in Oregon, it's fully legal to have an abortion, but like Idaho and Utah and some other states, it's not legal to have an abortion after I can't, each state is different of how they're laying their laws out in the next 30 days. Uh, yet um, pretty much you can say that abortion uh, has been banned or severely been restricted um, in some of the other other states. But places like Oregon, Washington, California, there are certain things that are happening for expansion. So, so I believe and I want to believe that the Supreme Court, somewhere in their discussion, and I know that I've read this and I, I haven't been able to find it, that they do care about the health of the mother they do care. They don't want people to die. Uh, and they do care about rights. Yet in the law, they've definitely said that the Constitution outlines the right of a person. And so that's where the idea of is an unborn child or is an unborn fetus a person. And they did weigh in on that just by overturning Roe v. Wade just the action of turning over Roe v. Wade is they declared that that unborn fetus child uh, was a person and that person had rights under the constitution. So that's where we sit uh, because, because that person is protected under the 14th amendment, I believe. Um, as an individual so that's kind of my pulling back from high school constitutional history and law um no not not i've been kind of deep diving it so but that is the issue that we're dealing with the supreme court threw it back to the states now the states have more power now sharia has some more history to share with us about abortion and abortion history specifically in america you, the United States of America. So you look at you look at the history of or the the history of a ruling, but of course that's just 1973 forward to 2022. That's that's only that's really only 50 years or 49 years. So we have a lot more history that surrounds this this uh, the reproductive rights of the fem of the woman. Um, that goes well beyond 1973. So Sharia, take the floor and you're going to kind of expand our knowledge a little bit. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a podcast this morning um, and that's where I learned this information. So it's very new to me. Um, but essentially abortions were practiced in this country, like pretty much always, um, including indigenous cultures. And I don't, I don't know enough about indigenous cultures to speak to that. Um, but I can speak to, um, United States of America history. Um, what I learned was that coming out of the civil war, um, we had made a lot of advancements in, um, medicine, um, learning about how germs were transmitted and, um, sterile procedures and all of that kind of stuff. And as, 
doctors were gaining more and more knowledge. They um, kind of wanted a monopoly on that knowledge. Um, and that extended to um, maternal and reproductive care, which had been um, mostly um, managed by uh, midwives and doulas up to that point. Um, midwives and doulas could perform abortions, they could facilitate miscarriages, they provided um, pre and post birth care, like everything centered around maternal health. Um, and that was just normal and accepted. And most people had herbs in their garden that could cause an abortion if that was what was needed for the situation. So it was coming out of the Civil War um, as doctors are trying to build up their profession and started to discredit um, this information to take power away from the doulas and midwives. And that's when um, we started to see um, a movement against abortion, um, which then came to a head in 1973 with the ruling of Roe v. Wade and now coming to a head again in 2022. So the way that I that I understand history and eventually abortion becomes illegal, but then the, the states then start opening up this idea of therapeutic abortion. And in therapeutic abortion, you're concerned about not just, uh, you're not just concerned about the child. You're, what you're doing is you're being concerned about the mother and therapeutic abortion, kind of an old term. I think. Uh, so the physical health, the mental health, the financial burdens, the social stigma, all yep. that is considered in the basically the physical and the mental health of a woman. So they would perform what they called therapeutic abortions. And therapeutic abortions were basically at in some cases that I've read, you walked in and said this pregnancy is causing a distress on my life and they would perform the abortion. Um, of course, there was a lot of illegal abortions because access to therapeutic abortions meant that you had to state that you were under distress or mental illness or such. And there were consequences to that, especially to um, people of color and people mm -hmm. of different minorities, but also uh, just marginalized people in general. So Poverty. it became, say again, Poverty in a sense. Right. Impoverished and, people. Yes. And so it became this this issue. Are you going to, you know, walk in and and you know, say that you you want an abortion um and actually admit that you're having like a mental break or a mental distress? And and of course again there were there were consequences for saying Indeed. that. Yeah, incarcerated. Right. Right. So the, so the rich and, and, and the sterilization poor, is, I think is what he's getting right. at. So <laughs> they're, they're between the rich and the poor, there became a disparity between two uh, distinct people groups. Um, let's say mm -hmm. the rich and the poor that it became a abortion was able to be accessed by rich and not accessed by the poor, the poor get poorer, the richer are able to get richer. So, so in this time, a president by the name of Ronald Reagan 
uh, signed in law in California. This is while he was governor pre, pre Roe v. Wade as governor that opened up the idea of therapeutic abortions without it, he gave more access to therapeutic abortions and a lot of Republican governors followed suit. They also called upon these this pastor group of people to help women find pathways to safe reproductive care, which I thought was interesting that there were coalitions of pastors all over the United States that actually helped women because it was a marginalized issue. So every time you have a marginalized issue, the church, or at least some of the church, is that's the call to rise forward and take care of those that are in the margins. So in the 1960s, if you could imagine the 50s and the 60s, um, a pregnant woman, especially one maybe of color or not married, or you just kind of add and you stack the deck against somebody that they are definitely a marginalized person at that point. So the church actually stepped up and helped find. So, so they have interviews with some of these pastors that they helped find women pathways forward to reproductive care. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there was counseling. There was talk. There was like a lot of help around the the subject. It wasn't, you know, just, hey, let me drive you to a clinic. So there was a lot of discussion around it. Um, other countries have different pathways to abortion. Like Israel, you actually have to submit a application type of thing, and it goes before a council of people. You're interviewed by a council of people at a hospital, um, a reproductive care facility. You're actually interviewed with a panel of people. They ask you a series of questions, and then they tell you whether or not you can move forward with your abortion they just i think it was like this last week just changed that to you can actually apply online and you don't have to sit before a board of people and like be shame you know like have a lot of shame stigma around you of what you're admitting to and why did you get pregnant and all these things so so other countries do other things we're not concerned about other countries right now we're just concerned about okay what do we what are we doing and how is the church the the objective here is not just to talk about abortion whether or not it's right or wrong moral more immoral ethical unethical we're here to come up with a pathway forward for the church and i think that's important so we talked about history we talked about the ruling we talked about a little bit of the constitution as much as we understand it the biggest beef that I have with this whole thing is in 1973, the Supreme Court was conservative in leaning and they were put in those positions by a conservative cohort of people. So the conservative groups are, they ruled for Roe v. Wade and, and mm -hmm. swung that pendulum. Now the perceived conservative Supreme Court has ruled against Roe v. Wade. So if the conservative Christian, right, the fundamentalist Christian is going to say abortion is the biggest genocide of all of history, of all of time, of all of creation, if they're actually saying that, which I've heard that before um, in pro-life seminars and groups and stuff, it's the biggest genocide of all time. Is anyone apologizing? Because like if the if the conservatives put it in, I mean, Ronald Reagan was a conservative, right? So he put therapeutic abortions in access. So is anyone apologizing? Because like if if you take that stance of genocide and murder, 
I mean, is there any retribution? Is there any, like, is there any, hey, we're sorry, we misinterpreted the Constitution in 73, we made a mistake, we've been enlightened with God and by God, and he gave us new enlightenment? I, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like that there needs to be a little more speak from the from the bench. I'd like a little more clarity from the bench, to be honest, but I'm not getting it, and I'm only well, one of millions. And with our own history, it is worth mentioning that um, that w the conservative party looked different in 1973. Um, that was before the rise of the religious right, the moral majority, um, which was latter 70s into the 80s. Um, I mean, it just, it looks different. We're not even talking about <laughs> the same thing anymore, I don't think. We're not. We're talking about um, we are talking about a party specifically turning from their roots of expansion of, of federal influence to an expansion of state influence. And so if you go back to the Civil War, Republicans were in the North, Democrats were in the South, yes. in that, if we're going to use those, those terms. And Republicans had an expansion of federal rights so that they could end, end slavery and end the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the hardship that was trying to navigate state versus federal rights, especially. Because in, they had made slavery a state's rights <clears throat> issue because they made slavery a state's rights issue. And I think it's important to note that as as conservatives and, and be that Republicans or if you want to put put that name on it, that the more they push for state rights, the more we can get on the road of, okay, so abortions on the table. Next we are hearing about uh, contraceptives, especially mm -hmm. in infanticide uh, contraceptive devices, um, IUDs and morning after pills, and mm. and and, and then you go into well, what's next at that point? You have um, you have LGBTQ. gay rights, LGBTQIA plus, anything like that. And then after that, if we go on the road, you have then. Uh, race and segregation and all these things that can be mm -hmm. reformed, taken out of the Constitution and put back into the state's hands. And so what well, people if I are... push back a little bit, I'll push back a little bit. You can push back a little bit, yeah. I think at a certain point, though, I mean, if we see riots like we have in the last, you know, handful of years, I mean, there's certain issues that get brought to the table that I think I think there would be a movement um, against it, and and so as as people in power shift their opinions and ideas and maybe mm -hmm. push it to the states or whatever, and then the states then make decisions. Um, I I think that we would have some pretty severe pushback. Now, whether that would make change, I don't know, but revolution does. You know, that's where you get that's where you get the idea of liberation theology. And that's mm -hmm. we can we can take that, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez style uh, all the way down that trail. But uh, but we can't 
we don't have time to go there. I, I don't more, think so. I was I more addressing the slope of, of logic that, that you're mm -hmm. going under. Right. And the cases that were already brought up in the draft. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. So I think that, I think that at a certain point though, culture would rise up and we see that biblically, we see that socially and, and in culture in general in modern times too. Yeah. And I think that there would be a turn and a shift um, that certain things, but although people, you know, have said like Whoopi Goldberg looked at Clarence Thomas and said, you know, we can't go back to a quarter person. Right. Like we can't go back there. And I 100% agree. So I, I think that, I think that people, I hope, I hope that people would find some reason. Let's talk about reason for a minute. Yeah. Well, can I bring something yes, up? Yes, please bring it up. I, I also <laughs> hope um, that, that we can create some cultural change. Um, I do think it's important to be aware that when your rights are coming from government, government can take rights away depending right. on who's in control. Sure. Yeah. So, and your location. Things can still change anytime yep. in either direction. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's where we have gotten comfortable, where mm -hmm. we have allowed certain voices to be very loud. Yeah. And, and we have not been advocating for something different. I, I would put I would put the onus as you know people are angry or celebrating and the Christian is angry or celebrating right now. I would put a lot of onus on the church because in the last fifty years, what has the church done to make Roe v. Wade irrelevant? That's the issue for me. Right. What has the church done in fifty years? Fifty years is a long time to put together, advocate for reproductive care, to put education in place. I mean, honestly, like we're as Christians, we're so afraid to talk about and we're so shame based when it comes to sex, the potential of sex, pregnancy, unintentional pregnancy, whatever it is. We're so we're so like shame based um, that that we don't talk about things. Therefore, we don't advocate for education. We don't talk about it in front of church. Um, I used to do a sex series every year where we talked about sex um, and I would well, rather look. If uh, you talk about it, yeah. And if you you provide avenues of safety, Resources. you're actually you're actually uh, condoning the behavior. Well, that's the that's the mentality. Yes, and that's that is what that's the what you're fighting against. Right, the mentality right. that you know just because you're educating people on what's available to you as resources. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, you're deemed a progressive, you know. Yeah, it's like the HPV shot, life. right? Right, exactly. There's a lot of shame so, around it. There's lots of shame, yeah. That will give them more of a reason to go have sex because that's a real thing. That was told to me when we yeah. were faced with, you know, whether or not my my daughter was going to get an HPV shot. Uh, you know, I had to really think about that. Go, okay, mm -hmm. well, 
you know, but I want my daughter to be protected in case like what, what happens if that's violated in her? What happens if that's right. like lines are crossed and she's and like in four and seven girls? What is it? Three and five? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a it's huge a, percentage that there are huge they... percentage. Yes. I'll, yeah. I'll agree with everything that everyone is saying right now. Okay. So what bothers me a little bit about these two arguments, pro-choice and pro-life, and the, from the Christian perspective, because there's Christians that are pro-choice and there's Christians that are pro-life. Now, the evangelical Christian, the kind of their tenant is pro-life. Um, for conservative Christian people, that's really what that swath of Christianity subscribes to. Then there's another group of Christians that would be pro-choice. The problem with this argument is both sides do not have, from my perspective, a handle on scripture, a handle on history, a handle on church tradition, a handle on what's real, not real, and foolish sounding and not foolish sounding when it comes to this issue of reproductive rights. So from a pastor's perspective, I get really upset because honestly, it just looks and seems foolish. Like when we open our mouths, we seem foolish. So let's just start with the pro-choice side of things, Christians and the pro-choice side of life. What they sound like when a Christian advocates for pro-choice, they just sound like a humanist. It's the antithesis argument where they look at, I am pro-choice because I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be like an evangelical Christian that has had his head, has, has his head in the sand. I don't want to be that person. And so I'm just going to do the anti-argument. I'm going to fall over to this camp. And that really bothers me because there's so many other avenues to take when it comes to uh, pro-choice. So using the antithesis to try to argue for your point is like saying, I'm right because I believe I'm right. And that just doesn't, and I'm right because I believe I'm right and you're wrong. There's the full thing. I'm right because I believe that I'm right and you're wrong. That just doesn't make sense to me. I think there's so much more that we could do when it comes to the pro-choice um, argument. So the pro-choice argument also though, uses the, in Christianity, uses the history of evangelicalism and the religious right as part of their argument of doing something different. So they didn't work on it. They hated on it. They're dumb. So we're going to be smart. <laughs> we're going to go over here. So you can't really build arguments that are solid and foundational theologies on just hating on the history of what somebody has done. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you're anti-party. So, so that's that's probably, I guess, one of the problems, one of the many problems that I have with Christians that are trying to form a pro-choice defense. There's just different ways to do it by just by by uh, just looking at theology or looking at the Bible. Um, there's different ways to do it than to just disagree with a people group. But then you have the pro-life people and the pro-life people, I can go on for hours upon hours because my, my wife and I actually worked with pro-life people. So like I was exposed to this movement at a very intimate level and 
we worked within it. We supported it. We went to their conferences and, and, you know, we sang their songs and, and such. And so I pulled up an article of a gentleman and it was in CNN and it was, you know, a very public article. So I'm just going to say some of the things that he said in defense of his pro-life uh, movement. He's Catholic, nothing against Catholics, um, but just like Protestants, Catholics have a lot of weird stuff in their faith. Protestants have a lot of weird stuff in our faith. And so we just have to say we're weird. So Christians are weird and we have weird stuff in our faith wherever we got that from. But the outside world looks at a Christian and goes, okay, those things that you believe in, like are not reasonable. You argue about baptism and communion. I have no interest in your internal arguments about colors of carpet, hymns, baptism, and communion. I could care less, right? So here he says this. I contend that Catholics cannot support legal abortion for two reasons. So here's his reasons. Here's the two reasons he gives. He only gives two reasons. First, Catholics are reasonable people. All Catholics? Exactly. So he just makes a generalizing statement about all Catholics. And I can tell you there's some theologies in Catholicism that there's a reason why I'm not Catholic. And so I'm looking at like transubstantiation, communion, popes don't decompose in the grave. We have a lot of like, you know, traditions that are going on that I just sit there and go, those aren't reasonable. And so if you're going to say that your people, you can say, we as people can be reasonable. That's okay. I can get that. We can be reasonable. But to say that Catholics in general are reasonable, there's a lot of reasonable Catholics that are pro-choice. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with that? Hello, President Biden. So then his second Catholic, Catholic argument is Catholics are guided by faith. And faith clearly teaches that abortion is a serious evil that must be stopped. So then underneath this article that was in CNN the other day, he then explicates out his first and second argument. And so then I go to his second argument, and this is his explication. Along with reason, so he says, we are reasonable people, right? So along with reason, revelation tells us that abortion is wrong. Okay. Okay. Okay, so knock on my door, right? While the Bible does not explicitly mention abortion. So where does your faith come from if it doesn't come from the Bible? If the Bible doesn't mention abortion, but our faith clearly, clearly is built on the principle that abortion is evil and wrong. But the Bible doesn't say anything about it, which is not true. So then I'm sitting there looking at this person's article going, okay, so then he says this. It does describe how human life exists in the womb. So out of two arguments broken down into two subset arguments, one of the subset arguments is actually viably true. That's what Christians sound like when it comes to pro-choice and pro-life arguments. We give all of this extra stuff and we say, listen to me now. And we sound, can I just say stupid? We come across so lame when it comes to social issues, cultural issues, all kinds of things. We just come across like, hi, I'm the most ignorant, uneducated person in the room. This is what I'm going to say. 
is that we're all as Christians, reasonable people. All Protestants are reasonable people. Is that even, is that even an argument? I wouldn't make defense? that argument. I wouldn't make that defense. I mean, I mean, you just can't build an argument defense on we're all reasonable people. Speaking from this position, we're all reasonable. And second, my faith is built on this. The Bible doesn't say anything about that, but I'm still going to say my faith is built on this. So where did your faith come from? From the cosmic forces of the sky? I just, I did. So anyway, so let's talk, let's build some cases. I'm good. I, I am pro-life. I am pro-life from beginning to end. I don't believe in the end in capital punishment. You can argue with me all day long about capital punishment. It removes the chance of reconciliation and repentance, period. When you kill somebody, it removes that opportunity. I am not for war. I'm anti-war. I'm anti-no regulation for guns. Guns kill people. I think they need to be regulated. I'm not for war. I'm not for guns. I'm not for death penalty. I'm also going to take the position on this panel because I know that Sheree is pro-choice. I'm going to say I'm not pro-abortion. I'm not like I'm not jonesing for people to go out and get why because I'm pro-life, but I'm also pro-life of the mother. And I'm also pro-life of that born baby. And I'm also pro-life of care around that mother. And so if we're going to say things like pro-life, we need to be pro-life from beginning to end. I am pro-homeless. I am pro-prisoner. I am pro. I am pro LGBTQ. I am pro any social issue that is attached to a human being. I am pro because it's a human being, and God calls us to love human beings. So, with that, Sharia, take us to numbers five, please. Oh yeah. Are we gonna have? It I need to. I need to cool off. <laughs> Sheree's like, I'm gonna get worked up, and here I am, red faced. <laughs> um, Rob, are you able to put numbers five up on the screen? I'm working on pulling it up on my phone too. There's Ray. There we go. Oh, that's is this asked. the numbers? That's yep. not numbers. Oh, you can do that one. Do Exodus 21. That's great. Okay, cool. Perfect. All right. Um, I'll read it aloud. Um, when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that she has a miscarriage, but no other injury occurs, then the guilty party will be fined what the woman's husband's demands as negotiated with the judges. If there is further injury, then you will give a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a bruise for a bruise, a wound for a wound. Ouch. Yeah. Um, this is from Exodus. Um, so it's when when God is delivering the law to, to the Israelite people. Um, so if a woman is injured and it causes a miscarriage, um, the... Um, What's the word I want? It's not reconciliation, but that's the idea. Rep uh, I mean, the compensation. Recompense or uh, yeah. penance. The penance. Yeah. Is whatever 
the woman's husband decides. Um, mm -hmm. Typically, like either a monetary amount or, you know, sheep, goat, cow, whatever. Whatever the husband decides. Um, if there's further injury, which means to the woman, mm -hmm. that's when a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is invoked. So that's placing importance on the woman's life. Um, it's placing importance on the injuries that she sustains. Mm -hmm. But if it's talking about just a miscarriage, that is not viewed as a life. Otherwise, the person who caused the injury would have been killed. So if I can include here, there's a huge history around the Hebrew people and uh, just their faith in general, huge history, but also commentary that has been written about Exodus 21. So in Exodus 21, it shows a miscarriage through violence. Mm -hmm. We don't know. It just says prematurely. So we don't know if that if that child survived or not, correct? It just was a miscarriage caused by violence or did the child die? I don't think the baby survived because that's what a miscarriage is. Okay. Yes. True. Thank you for clarifying that. See, this is but also I, the Hebrew from a male perspective. The Hebrew uses weird idioms too. So the text is hard to work with. Right. Well, the interpretation in the Talmud, now there's Talmudic interpretation, which is kind of a commentary around texts. And it actually says, like in Arakan 1.7, which is a Talmudic text about abortion. And they actually say that if a woman is up for capital punishment, she is to be executed before the child is born hmm. if she's about ready to give birth then the baby can be saved but if she's not ready to give birth then she's to be executed because in a lot of jewish tradition they believe that the that the child the fetus Carry in the, the womb is no it, the fetus in the womb is a part of the the mm -hmm. female body it's the woman's body it's not, not a separate, a separate being, entity right? yeah right um in a halat seven six and and uh in the talmudic text it says that if a woman is struggling giving birth and is about to die that it gives authorization to abort mm -hmm. the baby when it comes to the life of the mother to extract a fetus in utero in order to extract it to save the mother's life. So those are two, um, two ideas there. The halakhic text actually says very similar things with Exodus 21, that it's not the interpretation of that. It's not homicide. It's not infanticide of the child. Otherwise there would be death for death. It actually explains that right. later. So there would be death for death. So the text actually refers to not the death of the child, but the death of the mother. Right. So in Jewish tradition, this is why 
in Jewish tradition, you see a lot of support for abortion. And probably in Israel, we saw just in the last week, a lot of their cultural ideas definitely come from the Mishnah, the Halakhic and the Talmudic texts. So, and I don't know if like they use those to like interpret law and such, but I know that religious groups do. And so that would be a cultural issue for them to remain intact when it comes to reproductive rights. I, I suppose now is a good time to bring up that um, because in Hebrew, the word spirit and breath are the same. Um, there is an idea um, within Jewish understanding of the text that the child is not alive until it draws its first breath. That's when the spirit enters the child's body. Right. Well, you have the breath of God. You have mm -hmm. breath like right from the beginning. A lot of people say, well, created order, creative order is now reestablished when you turn over Roe v. Wade. Well, that says creative order says that Adam breath was brought him to life. Mm -hmm. So the breath of God. So our breath has always been that what you're saying. Right. And in the Bible, all the way through the Bible, the problem with pro-life is if you're going to say, I am pro-life based on the Bible, right? You can make a case out of the Bible that life begins at birth because of just the metaphor of born you have a few things like in Luke 141 and you have a poem that says, I was knit in my mother's womb. You have a few the things psalm, yeah. that say in the Psalm that says certain things, but the metaphor, no, but, and the metaphor is being born of God, being born again, being a born of Israel, being born born of this person. Mm -hmm. So the idea of being born is when life begins. So there was a lot of, Jake, why don't you jump in and, because uh, I don't want you to be quiet the whole time. I'm listening. It's all good. Um, you had Criswell's quote Chris there. Well, I mean, Criswell, yeah. Most of, I would say, pre-1980, um, and if you if you look into the history of the church and how the church has dealt with abortion care, and to be to be clear, it's never it's never Plan A. I don't think that we're ever talking about Plan A, even even in Scripture and how Scripture does. I mean, I would I would say Scripture supports a more abortion rights stance with the continuity of scripture that that itself is not is not plan a and it's the it's the plan b that the the mother or her community has has chosen for them and so in numbers five especially it's the it's the husband that believes that the the wife has been sleeping around and so and so they're going to they're going to cause and give her herbs to cause a miscarriage, which Jeshurae said earlier that it's a very 
common practice um, that you had them in your gardens, probably. Uh, if you wanted to know what herbs specifically, you can read uh, Ben Franklin's book on herbs and uh, ab- abortive herbs that you can you could have taken that has kind of been uh, squelched down. But um, there, if you want to make a church father or a a uh, not church father, what they call it, founding yeah, father. father stance founding on fathers, yeah. On what right. they thought about life. I don't think that they held a very high view of life, especially when they quote savages and and their quarter persons of people of color. Right. So you have a view of life, especially in the Constitution, is is hard to even establish. But uh, going back to back to Chriswell, who was the the leader of the Southern Baptist movement from 1969 to 1970 believed that Roe v. Wade was the correct ruling because he believes that life happened when the the baby had a a detached personality and a detached personhood I'd say not if I not personality of character but personality personage from their mother and so that is when life happened to to this very conservative, ultra conservative person that really founded um, our movement of of especially neo Baptists mega churches like Saddleback and Francis Chan and, and that style of of uh, preacher and church. And so, of course, their their views have evolved. Their views have evolved by, and I think that the church's view has especially evolved because of Jerry Falwell. Right. And so I think it's it's hard to talk about pro-life and pro-choice with not bringing up Jerry Falwell. And um, I would say that he had an agenda before and his agenda before was failing, and so he found an agenda that that he could fight for. Because, as we've said, it's it's easy to fight for um, people that can't speak, especially the preborn, because they don't talk back to you. So, I forget what I was supposed to answer, Chriswell. Yeah, you did. You did. You did a great job. Okay, Thank thanks. There you go. Sharia, take us down numbers five. We need to yeah. get that numbers five in. Take us down that trail. Okay, here we go. The Lord spoke to... Oh, no, it moved. <laughs> there it is. Thanks, Rob. The Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, A man may suspect that his wife has had an affair and has broken faith with him, that a man has had intercourse with her unknown to her husband, and that she has defiled herself in secret even though there are no witnesses and she isn't caught. If jealousy overcomes him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if jealousy overcomes him and he is jealous of his wife who hasn't defiled herself, then the man will bring his wife to the priest. He will bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley flour, 
He will not pour oil on it, nor offer frankincense with it, because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a grain offering for recognition, in order to recognize guilt. The priest will bring her close and make her stand before the Lord. The priest will take holy water in a clay jar, and taking dust from the floor of the dwelling, the priest will place it in the water. The priest will make the woman stand before the Lord, let the hair of the woman hang down, and place the grain offering for recognition, that is the grain offering for jealousy, in her hands. The water of bitterness that brings the curse will be in the hands of the priest. Then the priest will make her swear a solemn pledge, saying to the woman, If no man has slept with you, and you haven't had an affair, becoming defiled while married to your husband, then be immune from the water of bitterness that brings these curses. But if you have had an affair while married to your husband, if you have defiled yourself, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest must make the woman utter the curse and say to the woman, May the Lord make you a curse and a harmful pledge among your people, when the Lord induces a miscarriage and your womb discharges. And may the water that brings these curses enter your stomach and make your womb discharge and make you miscarry. And the woman will say, I agree, I agree. So the the Hebrew there says it's gross. it's gross. Yeah. It's the lit the thigh that her rots. Her thigh will rot. Yeah. Her thigh will rot. That's the interpretation of miscarriage. And so most, ultimately she goes sterile. Right. But most what I found interesting, most English translations say something like her womb falls out. Um, mm -hmm. which is also gross and, and disturbing. Um, yeah, yeah. but like so a lot of the Bible that, is disturbing. True. <laughs> yeah. The fact that CEV uses the term miscarriage, I think changes the whole, the whole passage and the way we look at it. Um, right. because Kevin, until you had, you had brought it up a few days ago, I had just never seen that in the text before. Um, right. And when you're using the miscarriage, it seems clear as day to me that well, this is an right. abortion. Because it's either a test for pregnancy, which would result in abortion. Right. Or if it's, a, it's an abortion, however you want to frame that, it results in either the herbs that she drank or the poison that she drank uh didn't do anything to her because there was nothing there right. or it did something to her because there was something there so either way it's the result is a miscarriage mm -hmm. well yeah those are some heavy verses mm -hmm. yeah jump in either way i didn't mean to say that uh it's either she wasn't pregnant or she was and nothing happened gotcha. or she was pregnant and it resulted in a miscarriage that's what i meant to say mm -hmm. all right so the halakhic status of an embryo fetus depends upon the stage of its development this is the halakhic interpretation of these verses from conception to the 40th day it is considered to be merely water at three months the pregnancy is physically recognizable prior to labor the fetus is considered the limb of its mother without independent legal status. During labor, before the head or the majority of the body is a breech birth, is delivered, 
the fetus is considered a living being, but one whose life is less valuable than the mother's. After the head of the majority of the body is birthed, the fetus has a nearly equal status with the mother, especially if it is a full-term pregnancy. Only after full-term pregnancy or survival of the premature fetus for 30 days does full human status adhere. Huh. 30 days. Wow. Wow. So <clears throat> we're not going to go there. We're not going to say 30 days. <laughs> but, you got a uh, month to choose. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so honestly, that's what that kind of means yeah. there. Um, that alludes to that. So I yeah. think that... Go ahead, Shreya. Well, depending on how your society is set up, and, and especially in a pre-industrial world, that is a matter of survival. And Correct. it was not common in a right. lot of cultures. Right. Infant mortality so and maternal mortality was mm -hmm. super high. Right. And on, a, on the side, we, as the United States, we have one of our, the highest... Uh, maternal mortality rates out of any developed nation. Yeah, ours is the right. worst. Yeah. So the problem that we face with the Supreme Court ruling is this, and this is a problem, is you have Islamic teaching, you have the Sharia law of Islamic teaching teaches something, I think it's 120 days. 26 weeks, yeah. Zero to 120 days. You have the Jewish interpretation with the Talmud, the halakhic interpretations, the Mishnah, the Talmudic interpretations of these specific scriptures of Numbers 5 and, and Exodus 21. Those for Sharia, she says, that's clear as day for me. And so now me as like Mr. Pro-Lifer, I have some like serious work to do. Because if the whole Bible's theme is born of God and born brings life and now i have numbers five and exodus 21 to deal with and every jewish traditional idea that's out there and i have 30 days to contend with even <laughs> i have some problems to work through that i think if i'm going to take a pro-life stance i need to work through those and actually have a solid so take all the politics aside leave the supreme court at the bench take all of the voices that you've heard right the issue comes down to what the jews called the nefesh and that has never changed the person is the pregnancy the fetus the embryo whatever stage of development that embryo is is that embryo fetus baby is that nefesh? Is that a person? To have edict thrown at us that we now have a universal interpretation of life, that's, that's pretty audacious. That's probably what stung me the most. It's like, wow, we now have a universal interpretation of life that even science doesn't like. Like <laughs> science doesn't even know, right? They haven't even decided on it. Um, and all religions haven't decided on it or take different views of it. So that's problematic with our freedom of religion and belief in, uh, not belief in science, but adherence to science. So, so as a pro-lifer and a pro-choicer, 
you have to figure out what are you laughing at? Paisley's dreaming. Can you hear her growling? Oh yeah, I can. I can hear her growling. Yeah, See, Paisley has no problems. Paisley's the dog that just <laughs> she doesn't. She's <laughs> yeah. catching squirrels in her dreams. Yeah, exactly. She's you have fixed, to decide. So Here's the issue. Yeah. It's it's not. It's not a, it's not Roe v. Wade. It's not a right to privacy issue. It's not, when it comes to theology and the argument for or against, it's a theological idea of nefesh. Do you believe that that is a potential of life? And where does that potential start for you? Does it start at conception? Because science tells me that life actually is before conception. Life is sperm and egg is life. That's life. So to say life begins at conception. Okay, no, it actually starts before that in the creation of, re, you know, reproductive ability. So you, could, you couldn't just like get through their argument. <laughs> No, no. So, so, so life, you have to figure out where the potential of life begins. But now you can't choose at conception. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, well, you know what? I, I'd have to be honest. Boots on the ground theology, right? If you believe that life begins at conception, every miscarriage would have a funeral, you would mourn, you would you would give a sermon, you would stand up and and you would give condolences to the mother, and there would be absolutely no shame around that miscarriage. That's the practical theology. If you Correct. believe that life starts at 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 you know, which would be wonderful no matter <laughs> where your stance. Also, if you we'd did be investing oh, in eternal health. Exactly, but because we people that are pro-life really I don't think believe in pro-life they're pro-fetus they're pro-birth and as long as that birth happens we're good and we you know if the child is on welfare we hate you or the mother is on welfare or if you have food stamps we hate you so we're not pro-life on the other side of the vaginal canal we're only pro-life in the womb Profetus. And so that's really difficult to absorb sometimes. <clears throat> but we have to decide whether you're pro choice or pro life. We have to decide the potential of life. You have to stay away from the words viability. And that's where we get really, really sticky because you're making a judgment call of whether life is viable. It's the potential. And is that potential start when the child is 26 weeks and can live independently or do you believe like the jews believed it's a limb of the mother that it's not nefesh until it can have an independent being or is it a part of the woman's body and just a, a part of it so nefesh is the theological work that needs to be done and I, at this point, after spending a week or longer, it seems, with my life and the work of pro-life, but also I'm in the last week of just during this time, I think we've convoluted some discussions and politics and 
religion and it's 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 sitting too close it's dangerously close mm. so the choice is not whether you're pro-life or pro-choice the choice is what do you believe about nefesh correct so let's just unpack that just a little bit for our last few minutes if we can scripturally theologically and i think even for the first the first um 350 years of christianity they would pro they would take the stance the same as the halakhic interpretation the mishnah that that life Talmud, yeah. the Talmud, the life was when you became an independent being and you're able to to sustain yourself outside of the womb. And so and I think if I could like think of why they would say that, it probably was a a mechanism or a healing position of the 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 extreme infant mortality that was the the pre prehistorical or even the uh the pre-industrialized uh world that it would be it would be easier to lose something that was just a part of you than something that had its own soul own being on the outside i have an idea there too go for um, it just with a the availability of um, like medical imaging, like we, we now know um, what a fetus looks like as it's growing and what different, not, not just um, water, right? It's not just water, you know, what different um, developmental um, milestones and markers yeah. there are. What, um, what fruit they are of the, of the, of the week. <laughs> Is it an avocado? Right. You know, so <laughs> I, I think there yeah. is something to being able to, to visualize it too. Mm -hmm. It's, it's less, uh, magical. Yeah. Mystical. Mystical. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of the early church fathers, you know, they had different views of that because they couldn't visualize it. Although just know that the reason why opinions were made, the mortality of women were so high that they could actually like, like pull the baby out right. and they could see that it could survive while the woman was dying. And so they, they actually would perform procedures that they could see that this, okay, this sure. child is developmentally at this stage, or they could see that it was, you know, a potential of life. It could have survived yeah. or it did survive. So there's, there's actually in those opinions that were made, it, it's not like they didn't know what was going on inside. <laughs> you know, So, so there was actual knowledge, I guess, of what was and, happening. And I think we're staying away from the topic of viability. And I think yes. we, because, which I think viability is great, and you have to nuance it with all people, first and foremost, are viable. Yes. And so when, when we, you walk down the road of viability, um, you start to say who is and who isn't viable. 
the prison than, is not viable, the houseless is not well, viable. Like even even taking it right back to birth, those that are born with disabilities, those that are non-neurotypical, those that are are born of another race, they are less viable. And so then you are able to make those eugenic conversations um, yeah. easier. And so that's why we're staying away from viability, even though we are talking about the viability of the person. And right now, the youngest, the youngest premature baby was born last year at 21 weeks that survived, and they're now a year old. But the amount of, of care that that baby needed and the privilege that that family had in order to well, is, is, is insane. But And we get the judgment calls of, is that viable or not viable? And you look right. back and think, well, that's not your decision to make. Right. So we got to close it down. This was a healthy discussion. Um, let me just give a prophetic word to the church. And I wish I could section this off and make a new video. I might do it. Just to like have my face out there, just giving a prophetic word to the church. It is Thursday been a night. Lot of, it is oh. Thursday night. There's, there's been a lot of social media buzz around pro-life and how the Christians won. That we won something. That's a win for life. Right. And there's a lot of memes out there that I've seen and motherhood's been reestablished and creative order has been reestablished. The values of God have been reestablished and all that good stuff. We won. Number one, Supreme Court ruling, whether whatever direction it goes, is I not considering and we should never consider what the government does for or against us wins or losses. Jesus is the win. Um and if you believe in Satan, Satan is the losses. So where do we, where do we stand as Christians? I think that, I think that it's really important to analyze, of course, all the social media buzz of now is the time we can now welcome all these beautiful babies into the world and adoption services can now be in full gear and rah, rah, re, we want. Here's all the money for that. Right. I've gone through two adoptions and I can tell you that those were some of the most difficult, difficult experiences of my life. They were very expensive, 30 grand, 30,000 to 20,000 and $30,000 for my adoptions. I would spend it again in a heartbeat. I love my kids and I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that I do it. I did it. And I never regret it. I come from a very privileged position. And so the adoption services that are out there right now, let me just tell you, church, is a very, very difficult process to go through. That is not an easy process, whether it be national or international adoption. So thinking that you're just going to put it in high gear and now we're going to have all these beautiful babies that can be adopted into the world. It's not like a bus is driving by on Sunday morning, dumping kids off and you're going to sign up like a roster and you're going to take a kid home on Sunday afternoon at noon and take them to you know, Coco's for, for brunch. You're not going to do that. It's a difficult process. So that's the first thought that, that as it's, the church is now I, is the time. Yeah, go ahead. It, adoption in the U S is not difficult. If 
if you are willing to accept a child that is over yes. the age of three. Yes. And that's and that's the sad part as well, is that we have right. now determined who's viable and who's not. Right. Yeah. So let me just finish my charge. To the Prophetic, church. sorry, go ahead. Prophetic charge to the church. So I sit there and I think if, if we think that that we're just going to wake up one day and all of our governmental and social services like adoption and foster care are all going to miraculously be, be fixed because the Supreme Court said, go, that's, that's just not going to happen. So where are we going to spend our time? Are we going to spend our time working? And where have we spent our time? Where have we spent our time? Because since 1973, we've had 49 years to spend a lot of time bolstering our adoption services and, and our, our prenatal care services and our reproductive care services and the, the um, access to, to health care for moms. And we've had all this time to advocate in, in, in Congress and Senate in, the, in, in our branches of government. We've had lots of time. And we have not spent that time. There is a there is a group that does baby boxes, and they are anonymous boxes in in uh, fire departments that a mother can take her born baby and put it in a box and shut the box, and an alarm goes off in the fire department, and that baby is now safe within the fire department. No questions asked. Anonymous drop off. No, no abandoning babies style where we're just putting it in a box safely and making sure that why isn't a baby box in every single, I mean, honestly, like we've spent billions advocating for anti-abortion. So why haven't we spent billions putting baby boxes in every fire department in America? Found, I just Foundries. Foundries. Why haven't we done that? So there's so much that we could have done. And here's the charge. There's so much that we could have done, but we didn't do it because the church doesn't do this stuff. We don't advocate for the marginalized. We're afraid to get our hands dirty. We're afraid to sit on the margins and help the, the people that just don't make us. We want, we want pretty people in our churches clapping their hands and singing hallelujah and sitting in our comfy chairs and being typical American church that doesn't feed the houseless or house those that are needing homes or clothe the naked or go to the prisoners and help them be free. We don't spend our time there. Many people, there are some people that do, but for the majority, we don't. So I would say that now is the time if we're going to be in this era of life, now is the time to spend our time making sure that women are safe, making sure that they're cared for, making sure that they have options, making sure that adoption care is actually a, a easier road to walk down, making sure foster care is an easier road to walk down, making sure that all the, and let's spend 50 solid years because we could have made Roe v. Wade a completely irrelevant ruling. Over 50 years, we could have taken the, the abortion rates and just dropped them significantly, but we didn't. We didn't spend the time. So if we're going to sit there and go win for Christianity, it'll be a win in 50 years for me. 
And so let's spend the next 50 years making it a win. That's where I'm at. So church, it's time to get busy. It's time to put boots on the ground if we're going to be in this situation and fix some of these problems that we have and not just jump into some camp of politics and point a finger and just dig your heels in. And if somebody believes something different, you're just against them and building arguments against them. Let's step out of that and step into proaction and actually build something and make sure that women are taken care of and not marginalized and depowered and, and all these things that we have going on. It's just nuts to me. Anyway, closing thoughts, you guys. I think that was a great closing thought. No, give me a closing thought. Give me a next. Uh, I'm I all worked add, up again. I want to <laughs> add, let's make sure that the women that we're caring for come from all colors and walks of life. Yes. Because yes. the reality is abortion has been inaccessible for women of color pretty much this whole time. Um, mm -hmm. Maternal health care for black women in particular is atrocious. So this is a big deal because white women are now feeling it, but this has been happening this whole time. And as a church, as we're trying to support women, we need to be supportive of all women. 100%. I think the argument with, to me goes back to to what the church has done in the past and not thinking about the last 50 years, but talking about the first three centuries yes. and continuing on that we were a people group that was known to take in the orphans uh, walking the streets at night and picking up children that have been abandoned as they were called foundries or foundlings. And it's sad that fire departments took over that role, but here we are. That orphanages were ran by, ch by churches, hospitals were ran by churches, hotels, hostels, anything with the HO uh, prefix is, is established by the church, and we have gotten away from that. And as we look, as we look to our future outside of the political agenda, because I think that the people that are advocating for the the end of Roe v. Wade would also advocate for the separation of church and state, especially if state is impacting church, not vice versa. But the that we would separate ourselves from that political system and and really focus on the love of everyone and that's our and that's our emotion for tonight 100 percent. thank there you it is. awesome well we got a little bit well i'll just say you said you were going to get fired up sure and i'm the one who got fired up <laughs> i think what we said tonight is reasonable i think what we said tonight is we're reasonable people here. We're, we're reasonable we are reasonable people. based upon our own reason. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm right because they're wrong and I'm right. Um, I think that the scriptures that we have and the things that we can do, we just have to get back to that nefesh. And if we could decide on that or to at least be allowing in that, I think we'd be better off.
better off as people, as Christians. And Jake, you're right. Shrey, you're right. Jake, separating church and state. It's time for the church to get out of the political realm. If you find yourself talking about politics so much in your life and not talking about Jesus enough, although we did that tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, we didn't I, talk about I, politics. We talked about the, the effect of politics. Political. Yeah. If you find yourself in the political discussions all the time, it's time to separate yourself out of those. And to get back into a Jesus conversation, a Bible conversation. And Shreya, you're right. We need to advocate for every single woman on the planet. Advocate for her rights and for her care and who she is as a person. Because she is Nefesh. And we need to, we need to actually put that into practice. Thanks, you two for joining tonight and giving me your authoritative and educated responses. I really appreciate that. And with that, I hope somebody out there gets something out of what we talked about tonight. Good night. Have a wonderful night, evening. Good night.